What a wild title. Yeah. Are we going to be able to post that without censoring? Yeah, I think so. Do it anyways. I guess. Shout Do out it live. To- <laughs> Shout out to any country who doesn't get this one episode because of the title. <laughs> another episode of is fitz happy i'm luke and i'm emma and this week we're discussing chapter 17 kenneth's whore yeah very explicit name <laughs> and with that name we do have to have a content warning on this week's episode we will be discussing some implied sexual violence uh in regards to etta the namesake of this <laughs> this chapter uh-huh. later on so just be aware of that and just a ton of violence in general for yeah, this chapter. Yeah. Violence in general. Yeah. But yeah, so as rereaders, if you did not remember what happens in this, um, there is a lot of violence and there is implied sexual violence from some of the, I can't really call them villains because everyone in this chapter is kind of a villain, but the antagonists of this particular chapter. <laughs> the antagonist to uh, Kenneth himself. Yes, so. Yeah. Either way, we are with Kenneth this chapter, and he is on the Marietta still. They are pulling into Divi Town. So they are pulling into Divi Town, and Kenneth is on board, cautioning and talking to Sorkor before they get into the full swing of docking. Sorkor is kind of reliving the amazing events of their new notoriety across the Pirate Isles, particularly in Littleport, that... One person, one madame, turned her whole house over to all the sailors, and all of the women in there were very enthusiastic and pleased to uh, and accommodate the the sailors of Kenneth's right. crew because of their good deeds, freeing the slaves and, and the notoriety that they have gained. Kenneth, of course, were in his head, so everything about that is tinged with a heavy-handed cynicism. Right. <laughs> and, oh, yes, all that disease to share and everything for like free. this. Yeah, yes. for free. Wonderful. But he also is cautioning Sorkor at the same time with some good sense here, saying, Caution the men to remember that few prophets are treated well in their hometowns. I mean that although others elsewhere may regard our freeing of slaves and fitting them out as pirates with a share in our territory— As an act of philanthropy, some here will see us as creators of competition, and they will judge it their duty to curb our ambitions. You mean they're going to be jealous and they'll rub our faces in the dirt if they get the chance? Kenneth considered a moment. Exactly. A slow smile crawled across Sorkor's scarred visage. But Captain, that's exactly what the men are looking forward to. Them trying to put us in our places. Ah. And Captain? Yes, Sorkor? The men sort of took a vote, sir. And them, what didn't agree, was persuaded to change their minds. Every man will be taking a draw this time, sir, and letting you sell off the cargo whole. Sorkor vigorously scratched the side of his face. I suggested they might want to let Divitown know they all believe in their captain. Now, mind, they weren't all willing to say they'd do it this way every time. But this time, well, it's your toss. 
Sorkor, exclaimed Kennan, and his smile widened fractionally. That was well done. So we have more of Kennet's luck working in their favor. Everyone is believing in Kennet, and with the luck at Askew, Sorkor is once again believing in Kennet as well, and he is working his magic with the crew and rallying the crew behind Kennet's way of thinking. Going back to the first time we met him, where the draw is you get some stipend early and will get paid out more once all of your your booty is sold off instead of just taking, you know, some rum and like uh, some cloth and bartering that directly. Right. And I think what's really important about this opening scene is that it really shows us how far the relationship has been mended since last we left off. Because at the end of the last chapter we had with Kennet, Sorkor was kind of, they were kind of on not good terms. At I least mean, in the middle of that chapter, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, by the end, Sorkor is apologizing and saying he should never have doubted his captain, but there's still this weird relationship or this like weird tension to their relationship at the end of that, that we don't really have anymore here because time has passed and Sorkor is once again under Kenneth's thumb the way he likes it. So <laughs> it is. Yeah. Yeah. And they're sailing up to Divi town now and Kenneth in his mind is trying out the word home, but he doesn't quite fit no. Divi town. He never, he doesn't quite have that feeling that this is his home port, no. but port is fine. <laughs> yes. But port is fine. Sorkor's hastening away. They're getting ready to dock and everything like that. And Kennet made a mental tally of their captures since they last had tied up here. So we get a little bit of a recap of what they've gone through. And he says, seven ships under their belts. Four of them had been slavers. They'd made five pursuits of live ships with nothing even approaching success in that area. He was almost resigned to giving up that part of the plan. Perhaps he could achieve the same end simply by capturing enough slave ships. He and Sorkor had worked a bit of math the other night over a mug or two of rum. All of it was speculative, but the results were always pleasant. No matter how well or how poorly the four ships succeeded in piracy, half of the tank would come back to the Marietta. In each capture, Kennet had awarded the captaincy of the taken vessel to one of his seasoned men, and that too had been inspired, for now those that remained on board the Marietta actively vied for his attention, hoping to distinguish themselves sufficiently to earn ships of their own. The only drawback was that it might eventually deplete his own crew of proven men. He put that worry out of his mind. By then he would have a flotilla, no, a fleet of pirate ships under his command, and they would be bound to him not just by debt, but by gratitude. So he's... Claiming a little bit, well, maybe not claiming, but he is going with the flow of like, yeah, even the slave ships were a great idea. And if we get enough of them, maybe I don't even need a live ship. Maybe I can create that awe factor in the Pirate Isles just by the goodwill of the people because he has now been convinced through repeated action that it's not just a stupid thing. People want to believe and they appreciate him doing this. So it's... A different, it's a change of thought from when he first did it. Everyone's like, this is such a burden. Right. (laughs) Everyone's going to hate this. Well, I also think it's not just seeing that people are reacting, but which types of people. Like they just came from Littleport, it said, which is not necessarily a um, 
slate a previously i guess recently freed slave community like the first stop was so it's like places like this where it's not people who know the slaves being freed who are also reacting positively that is really cementing that I think. And that he's able to see like, Oh, maybe I just was wrong about this thing. Although he doesn't say it that way because Kenneth can never be wrong. It was just luck. And he's going to keep trusting that luck. Yeah, definitely. And, and relying on that gratitude now, which is a change of pace as well, because he says, even those the slaves that he frees that, have not chosen a life of piracy must still think of him with gratitude for freeing them. So collecting all of that goodwill can eventually add up to something as much as capturing a live ship, capturing the imaginations of the pirate isles people. Right. So it's really just all good here right now for Kenneth. Things are looking good. Although there is that foreshadowing at the beginning of right now that they're in their home port, potentially there's going to be, trouble which there is yes yeah but he is believing in his goal at the moment right he can be come the king of the pirate isles he relates a little bit more about the ships that they had taken three of the plunder ships uh, so there was four slave ships seven ships in total so three of the plunder ships had not been noteworthy at all but they do have some additional goods that they took from those and he says uh the other two ships, because one of them sank, and the crews that had been ransomed through Kenneth's usual brokers. And then he has a little remark of like, was he getting too confident of himself? He's using the same people over and over. Maybe he should try to change things up. So he still has, you know, it's still Kenneth. He's paranoid about certain things. Right. And he's still thinking like a pirate, even though he wants to be a merchant king. Right. And I mean, there is that little sense of like, yes, sure, there's this grander plan in place and ideas, but there's still the little nitty gritty that has to happen day to day before then. Yeah, exactly. And then also we get, you know, this whole thing of, yeah, people are loving what Kenneth's doing. This is definitely possible. It's uplifting. And then we get a little bit of taste again of actual Kenneth's where (laughs) he talks about one of the captains of one of those ships was surly and cursing him out and warned him that there were rewards for his capture now, not only in Jamalia, but even in Bingtown. Kenneth had thanked him and let him make the rest of his trip to Chalced, sitting in his own bilgewater chained like a slave. He'd been courteous enough when Kenneth finally had him hold on deck. Kenneth decided he had always underrated the effects that dark and wet and chains could have on a man's spirit. Well, one was never too old to learn. So then we have Kenneth right there being like, you know, treating like treating people like a slave is kind of good sometimes. <laughs> it actually does have its uses. Yeah. So. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. But we also get a peek into the fact that Kenneth's notoriety is really growing, not yes. just with people that he's affecting. I guess he's affecting the satrap and people in Jamalia and Chalced also, but just in different ways. So it's not just the people he's positively affecting that are hearing of him and know of him. Yeah. This is something that I I think is touched on a little bit more later on in the chapter, but they did talk about it as a worry early on in the book as well, that going after slave ships touches the satraps money. And we've talked right. about this as in general too, because the satrap is so entrenched with Chelsea 
being addicted to the herbs that they can provide and everything like that. And the slave labor being pretty essential to the economy at this point. Right. So him doing that will gain him notoriety and he is wanted now. Right. But I mean, if you want to be the pirate king, maybe it's good to build notoriety in that way. I don't know. Exactly. All Kenneth's luck working out for him. So he and Sorcor have docked. They stroll down from the ship and they are off both in their best dress to go to some merchants to try to sell off the whole of their goods so they can get the best price. Right. However, their best dressed is completely opposite of each <laughs> yes, other. Yes. Um, Kenneth makes the remark that no matter who inspected them, at least one of them would be seen as having good taste. Um, because of how different. So no matter who's looking, somebody will think one of them has good taste with Sorcor and his brilliant colors and his patterns. And sure, it's expensive fabric that he's using, but it's, according to Kenneth's taste, a little and too loud. Gaudy. And yeah. yeah, it's just a lot. <laughs> and then there's Kenneth who he's got a more refined taste so he has more tailored clothing that isn't as baggy or colorful but it's really well made and there's lace spilling out of his shirt with both on the his cuffs and the neckline which is super expensive lace and he said even if somebody couldn't realize the worth and the value of this sort of style they would at least be able to tell that it like is crafted well and that's important to him too and he mentions that his own outfit was tailored and created by a slave that he freed and that was uh, made him even more excited to wear it because charged him nothing at all yes (laughs) yeah so but it is really interesting to see uh kenneth look at the two of them and go well at least one of us will always be seen as having good taste right it's actually a very nice thing for Kenneth. I kind of felt like this whole chapter, Kenneth was a little bit nicer than normal. Um, he's in a good mood. Yeah, I suppose so. He's getting <laughs> what he wants, I guess. Yes, so. yeah. He's in a stronger position at this point. True. Because they head towards uh, Sincure Falden. Is that how you pronounce it in your head? Sincure? I, at first I said Sincure, but that's like too close to Sincere. Um, and it's like a honorific. Because I, I was trying to... Like Senor. Senor or Monsieur, Monsieur, yeah, you know, Monsieur. Uh, I don't know. It's really hard because I that's one of the words I skip <laughs> when I read it because I don't like the way it sounds in I, any iteration. Yeah, I I think I'm gonna do sincure. Okay. Because sincere is just too close to sincere for me, and I'm that's gonna mess fair. it up. I know it's okay. Sincere, it is. I don't think it pops up very often. So. No. Well, but, it's a made-up word, so. Yes, true, true. <laughs> so, Sincure Falden is a merchant that we had met before. The first time that we're in Divi Town when Sorcor did not want to accompany Kenneth on his way. And we didn't get much interaction with him. It was just Kenneth saying, you know, he sold this thing for way too little, but he was so mad at that. The guy overpaid for this, so it kind of made up for it. Whatever. Right. So this is a merchant that he goes back to repeatedly. It's one of his main contacts. And he goes here first. Usually it seems like. But they don't have a contract or anything like that. But Kenneth here is kind of expecting something a little bit more. 
And what he receives, what he gets at Sinkur's Falden's estate is much more than he's actually expecting. Because he's expecting some, uh, you know, a little bit more, I don't know, a little bit more pomp and circumstance. But instead he's brought to like a sitting room, mm-hmm. being waited on. It's the whole big ordeal of but, yeah. schmoozing. Yeah, and he mentions that um, just based off of the outfit that the man walks in with alone, he's going to be asking for 5% more than he originally had. Yes, yeah. And they're being waited on by uh, the man's wife herself. Like, this is not just, hey, we'll have my servants do this. It's like, we're trying to impress you. Yes. And show off our wealth and, like, how good of idea of a partnership could be. Right. And it also, I think, is reminiscent of when Kenneth was trying to convince Sorkor. It's yeah. done a little bit less well because it's not one on one and there's like more things at play. But I think the same ideas are being used here. 100%. Where it's just, there, it's flashy. You're trying to be personal and you want the person to feel like, yeah, this is like, I want this too. Mm-hmm. It starts off. With uh, Falden greeting them, saying, you honor me by seeking me out first. And this isn't this your first mate, Sincur, uh, Sorkor, of whom I have heard so much. Like, just very buttery. Yes. <laughs> and Kenneth is trying to take control before Sorkor can, like, stammer his way through, according to Kenneth. Smiling and saying, like, you speak of us honoring you with our trade. And how is that? Have we not sought out your business before? And Falden smiles and make a de- makes a deprecating gesture saying, ah, but then if you will excuse my saying so, you were but one more pirate. Now, if all we hear is true, you are Captain Kennet the Liberator. Not to mention Captain Kennet, the co-owner of four more ships than the last time I saw you. So word does travel around. He is gaining a lot more notoriety in Divi Town itself, pretty much the captain, uh, the capital of uh, the pirates. Right. And that carries a lot of weight, especially for more ships. Right. Seeing dollar signs here. Definitely. Especially for a merchant who can tell that he's about to get a lot more cargo. That's really nice. And that he can resell for a lot. Yeah. So he says, before we negotiate for but one more shipload of cargo, I suggest we might consider the benefits to both of us if I were always your first choice for many shiploads of cargo. I do also I do also want to say that can it make can it makes that Sorcor has the grace or the at least somewhat understanding to keep quiet and watch yes. which I think is really interesting because at no point do we like hear Sorcor making noises or have a description of like what he is actually doing. We just know that Kenneth is really nervous, seems to be very nervous about Sorcor messing this up for him. But Sorcord needs to be here. So Yes, yeah. So Kenneth, of course, it's the typical, you know, negotiation thing. I see no benefit in us. I see the benefit to you, blah, blah, blah. And Sincure Falden goes on a very long explanation of pretty basic things. Right. It basically sums up to if you use me as your only merchant, then I can get a a place to store all your goods and yeah. sell them for more. Yeah, whatever. A lot easier. So like basically supply and demand. If you get 200 casks of brandy, 
instead of flooding the market with all 200 right away, because we have to sell right away, if I'm your partner, we can have a warehouse. I can sell one every month and it's super high premium for each time and you get that profit, you know? Right. And Sorcor is very impressed by this whole spiel. Right. And on top of that, he suggests maybe getting a boat of his own to be able to go to Chalced and trade these and other ports as well. Yes. Yeah. So really laying out a prospect for a big merchant thing in the future. Right. Merchant partnership. And Sorcor, according to Kenneth, is looking a little bit too impressed by all of this. And he kind of resisted the urge to nudge him with his boot. He would only have looked startled and puzzled as well. Instead, Kenneth leaned back in his uncomfortable chair as if relaxing. Simple economics, he announced casually. Your suggestions are far from unique, Sincur Falden. Falden nods, not at all flustered, saying, Many great ideas are not unique. They only become unique when the men who have the wherewithal actually to implement them come together. And then he pauses, weighs his words, and leads into Kenneth the King. Yeah, which he has to do very carefully because he doesn't want to say the wrong thing and he doesn't want to imply something if it's not true. But he is trying to go off of some gossip he's heard that he thinks will do well to bring to Kenneth's attention. Yeah, and he also doesn't want to lay too heavily on like, yeah, I could see you as a king. So he leans into what... Kenneth did to Sorcor, actually. Yeah. By saying, Some say the word king and smile on their beards. I do not. I have not proffered the word king to you at all in my business offer, and yet, if we applied ourselves, one might rise to that much power and wealth and authority, with or without the word king attached to one. Words such as that tend to unsettle folks, but I trust it is not the word you aspire to, but the state of being, which is pretty much the same thing that he said to Sorkor, obviously prettied up a bit. Yeah. But we would have as much power as lords. We could live like lords. You and me together would have that much wealth and prestige. It's not, I want to be a king and lord over you. It's, I want to have that much power. (laughs) Right, right. No, which I think is really artfully done. And it does show kind of how Kenneth is skilled in this merchant background and how that yeah. helped him in being captain. And he really didn't, he wasn't born in Bingtown. He didn't grow up in Bingtown, but his father was a merchant. His right. mother was a longtime <laughs> partner to a merchant from there. And he has been a pirate selling his goods for a long time. He's used to this stuff. Yeah. It's definitely his kind of world. And seeing it reflected, though not seeming as well done, (laughs) is very interesting. Although, I don't know. It could just be that... We're in Kenneth's head. Yeah, Kenneth would never give a job well done to anyone. Right. And on top of that, I highly doubt we're getting the full picture. He's not necessarily reliable in a narrator (laughs) sense. I think think this is very well done, and it's offered up very neutrally. But obviously leaning towards you and me together, we could be great, right? Right. It's definitely, from Falden's point of view, I think he's nailing it of what he wants to do. But Kenneth is just so cynical and too street smart for that right? as well. He, he, he doesn't accept right away anything. Yeah, so. definitely. Which is a skill. Yeah. But after uh, Sincure Falden does say that... Sorcor's eyes are leaping back and forth between Falden and Kennet. 
His glance was wide, full of wonder. It is one thing to hear one's captain speak of a desire for power. It was entirely another to find that a respected merchant might take such words seriously. And this might be the first time that it's said out loud to Kenneth with Sorcor right there being like, this could be a reality. Right. I think that this is really well done because obviously Sorcor has now had a little bit of taste of what more power brings with going through the other ports and the other towns and getting special treatment and then coming here and realizing that some people are taking what Kenneth wants to do and is saying seriously and they're willing to give better deals because of it. I think that makes it more real. I think that makes Sorcor a little bit more apt to believe that it's possible. Right. Because I think it's really hard to believe in something when it's just two people talking about it. I think it binds him closer to Kenneth. Yes, definitely. Of like, oh, wow, Kenneth brought me into his good graces and told me before other people knew. Right. And I got to get in on this. It makes it feel more like more of a connection, more of a camaraderie, even though it's pretty one-sided because Kenneth's (laughs) basically just using Sorcor. But it is really well done and it is really interesting to see Sorcor just so amazed at all this stuff that Kenneth has been thinking and acting on for so long. And Sorcor is just now starting to get it. <laughs> He's like yeah. really. Which, I mean, to be fair, that's kind of needs that extra outside influence to yeah. prove that it is possible. Definitely. And this is everything that Kenneth has been kind of working towards. And his reaction to this is very important so he he immediately licks his lips. He's like, I'm going to answer and looks down at his wrist, his charm on his wrist, which winks up at him and then folds its lips tight as if to promote silence. And it was all that Kenneth could do to keep from staring at it. He found he had sat up straight. Resolutely, he stilled his own features and looked away from the wizardwood charm. And I think that that little break in there, him seeing the the charm wink and then fold its lips tightly to, you know, encourage him to be silent really restrains Kenneth's response to this. I think, I don't know, because it's taken such care, Robin Hobb takes such care to describe Kenneth's body language right? What, that Kenneth didn't even know. And this is a man who is in control of every single little smile is meant to evoke a different emotion, right? Right. With him sitting up straight and he didn't notice, with him, you know, moistening his lips like he's almost like nervous or something or excited, I think that little half second having to still his features, like, lets him collect himself a little bit and then allows him to have a little restraint in his response, basically saying, What you propose goes far beyond merely doing business together. Partner, you have said more than once. Partner, dear Sincure Falden, is a word that my first mate and I hold in a special regard. So far, we've extended it only to each other. We too know the full depth of that word, partner. Money alone does not buy it. He hoped that Sorkor would not miss the reminder of mutual loyalty. Falden was looking a bit alarmed now and Kenneth smiled at him. However, we are still listening. So I think the merchant really meant that as his dagger. like, this is what he wants. This is right. what I'll dangle in front of him. And he, I think he almost got Kenneth there. Yeah. I, yeah, I would somewhat agree. I think that 
I mean, it would be a, it would be a full on jumping no, in. No, yeah, but <laughs> Kenneth would never. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as much as I dislike him and think that it's a little overboard how much he overthinks things, I do think he is smart. Yeah, and so I think that he knows that it's not the smartest just to say yes to the first offer, and. So there is that, but I do think you're right that he was able to collect himself more. Um, I, I don't know. I guess I didn't look too much into, into the moment with the wrists like you did, but thinking about it, it makes a lot of sense. I'm um, fascinated by the, the small charm. So I try to pay attention to every little scene that it's in. That's fair. Because it's a very unique thing. <laughs> Truly. It's so weird to me because it's so like, I can't tell if this thing can tell the future or if it's just crazy good at saying something. It's like the fool where, except if the fool couldn't actually tell the future, like saying really weird cryptic things. And then that thing comes to pass or that like has a direct impact on something about to happen. I don't know. It's really odd and I don't know how to feel about it. (laughs) Fulton is a little bit on the back foot now and with, with Kenneth's open invitation for him to keep talking, he says, I see what you do. You gather not only wealth, but influence loyalty of men and power of ships are behind that loyalty, but only I can offer one thing, respectability. And Sorcor shoots Kenneth a puzzled glance because this is, this is something that pirates don't have to deal with ever, right? right. They They yeah. sell it to their, certain buyers and then they're off to do more pirating right they don't need to deal with a an established world and that is what falden is offering is i am a merchant yes i buy from pirates but i am a proper merchant that can sell to anybody right he can go to chalced and make sales with stolen goods because of who he is yeah and kenneth's kind of like signaling to sorcor hold where you are it's fine. And then continues questioning and they continue, t- continue talking a little bit. And what Falden is kind of putting out is like, I offer respectability. I am a merchant. Like Emma said, I can go to all of these different lands, trade and everything, but I have an established house. I have a name. I have respect on that name. I live in a city. I have lived here forever. I grew up here. And he says that... I am sure this is what you have seen as well as I have. Times are changing us. I myself have been here a score of years, and my wife was born in this town, as were my children. If a proper society is to rise from the mud and shanties here, well, we will be its cornerstones, we and others like us, and those who have joined our families. And there's a signal, well, kind of says as if it was on some sort of signal, his wife and his daughters come out to serve more refreshments. Right. And this is his offer, basically. You can marry into my family. We will be partners, as you say, that mutual loyalty and respect, that Mm -hmm. binding force. And you will actually have backing of a proper family, a proper homestead, a respectable, you know, father-in-law. Right. To build your empire on. And on top of that, if he is marrying into the family, then there's that stability of, I can't just take your stuff and run. You have one of my daughters tied to you. So there's that undercurrent going on as well. Right. 
Yes. Which is more stability. Yeah, for sure. And Kenneth, of course, sees this play and says, his daughters, his bargaining chips on the board, the pass cards to respectability. They were not Divi Town sluts. Neither dared to look at Kenneth, but one sent Sorkor a shy smile and a glance from beneath lowered lashes. They were, Kenneth surmised, probably even virgins, never allowed to walk on the streets of Divi Town unless Mama's watchful eyes were upon them. Nor were they bad-looking. Durja still spoke in their pale skin and honey hair, but their eyes were almond-shaped and hazel. Both were plump as ripe fruit, and their bared arms round and white. They set out food and drink for each man and for their mama. And Sorkor had lowered his eyes to his plate, but was sucking speculatively on his lower lip. He suddenly lifted his glance and boldly stared at one of the sisters. A blush raced up her cheeks at his glance. She did not meet his eyes, but she did not turn aside from his stare either. The younger girl could have been no more than fifteen, her sister at most seventeen. Smooth and unscarred they were, a man's transport into a gentle world where women were soft and quiet and saw willingly to their husband's needs. A world many men probably dreamed about, Kenneth thought, and Sorkor was most likely one of them. What other prize could it be farther from the grasp of the scarred and tattooed pirate than the willing embrace of a pale virgin? That which was most unattainable was always most desirable. And he notes that Falden pretended not to notice the pirate's ogling of his daughter. Instead, he exclaimed, ah, refreshment. Let's take a moment and enjoy. Right. I just want to pause to talk about elephant in the room (laughs) that um it's pretty gross that (laughs) pretty (laughs) yeah uh that a 15 year old and a 17 year old are being brought out as bargaining chips to men in their late 30s at the youngest Sorkor, Um, yeah late 30s early 40s or excuse me kenneth late 30s early 40s i think we said maybe early 40s for him Sorkor might be younger but not much probably yeah so we're going to be generous and say he's somewhere in his thirties and it's gross. I don't yeah. like it. It's yucky. It's skeevy. Makes my skin crawl to think about, but that is what's chosen to be written. So that is what it must be. <laughs> Luckily fictional book, fictional characters. No children were actually ogled yeah. <laughs> in the making of this, but yeah, I think it's really gross and I would feel bad if I didn't say outright, ew, and that I do not approve and don't know why Robin Hood had to make that decision. It is somewhat of a trope. I don't know if that trope has, you know, roots in historical accuracy that people in the mid medieval times and whatever would, or even Victorian era would marry their young daughters off to an older, richer person. Right. Right. To, bind families together it's it's in pride and prejudice it's in you know it's in yeah. all of those kind of old stories so i think that's kind of the trope that she's drawing on here it's right that there's it's gross but it's an often a bargaining chip yeah for, and if it's supposed to be yeah. this sort of time period feel i guess like i get it i do i don't think it's right i think it's gross but that's where we're at Yep. We don't have to talk about that aspect of it again. Just just know we don't like it. <laughs> I think I speak for us both when I say we don't like it. Kenneth is saying, or at least in his, he's reflecting in his head. Sorry, I'm not. he's not saying this out loud. But these two were just the first offer from Divi Town. Right. And not necessarily the best, nor did this respectability have to come from Divi Town. 
There were other pirate towns on other islands and merchants more wealthy than Falden. There was no need to be hasty in choosing, no need at all. Right. And I think it's really interesting because there is this really weird aspect of this where Kenneth kind of isn't interested at all in these women. He's not really interested in most women, to be fair. Yeah. But he's not, he can tell that they're beautiful, that there's nothing wrong with their looks. But he also just thinks about the simplicity of it all and how simple men like Sorcor would, of course, be enticed by this simple offer. Because when else would someone like that be able to get somebody beautiful, young, and unmarred by unmarred. the harsh realities <laughs> yes. of Divi Town? Yeah. There, that, there's not a ton of opportunity for someone like Sorcor to meet someone like that organically. And so, of course, this is a big carrot in front of the horse. Right. So yeah, it definitely is this interesting feel of Kenneth kind of just observing and it's not even as mean as it could be because Kenneth could be really scathing right now, but instead he just kind of is observing like, okay, this is what's going on. Sorcor is definitely taken by this, but I'll counsel him. It's fine. It's nice to know this is what people are going to be giving us. But that's a task ahead of him, right? He he needs to dodge any commitments. And he does manage to do so. He sells off his cargo profitably. But more importantly, he does that without fully committing himself to a permanent alliance with Falden. So he leaves Falden with the dubious security that he'll show Falden his goods from the Marietta first. But that's pretty much it. It's like right. the best he'll get and he'll have to be happy with it for now. Right. And that's a big deal because there are four other ships with cargo that Kenneth has not promised to show first. Right. And Kenneth is very pleased with himself saying, I could almost see him ciphering the numbers on the back of his tongue. How much would he have to overpay us for our next three cargoes to assure us his goodwill? <laughs> and Sorcor is just still captivated by... The the daughters saying the younger one, was she Alyssum or Lily? Don't you worry about it, Kenneth suggested callously. I am sure that if you don't fancy her name, Felden will allow you to change it here. Which, yes, it's coming from Kenneth, but also... He's probably not wrong. He's and- not wrong. That's, that's probably like the most modern take on this situation Literally. in this book. <laughs> I mean, he does make a good point. Like if a man is willing to sell his 15 year old daughter to a man that he barely knows who has a not very good reputation. Who cares what you call her? Yeah. (laughs) As long as we both make money. Yeah. As long as you call her your wife and he gets a cut, like he probably doesn't care. And yuck. I guess Kenneth says it pretty neutrally as far as it goes. But you're right. It is pretty modern to just be snuck in there. So Kenneth is, he, he doesn't really know whether to frown or smile at Sorcor's distractedness. He is contemplating that, so yeah, so easily he can be distracted with this, with that offer. And Kenneth's just like scratching his chin like, I don't know whether this is good or bad or just like I should laugh because he's such a simple man, you know? Right. And, you know, as he's contemplating this, he has sent Sorkor away. He has sent him back to the ship with the tally sticks that they've gotten, which seems to be... um, Uh, IOUs, basically. Yeah. Just of a little, like, this is what you will get paid once the 
stuff is gone. And yep. he reminds him not to take any less than the amount that the tally sticks are for. Yeah, and so Sorkor walks away back to the ship, and Kenneth gives his head a little minute shake, saying, Horace, he congratulated himself quietly, whores make it all so much simpler. And then the wind comes up, and he says to himself, I've never cared so much for the cold. And he has a small conversation with his charm now, who pipes up in answer to him, saying, No one does. Not even whores. Kenneth, of course, is... It, this is still very new. This is maybe, like, what, the third time it's ever talked to him? Right, yeah. So slowly lifting up his wrist to come face to face and demanding softly, and why do you speak to me this time? Your pardon, the tiny smile was mocking as his own. I thought you had spoken to me first. I was just agreeing. There is no strange weight, then, to be put on your words? The tiny wizardwood charm pursed its lips as if considering. No more than I might put to yours, the face suggested. He gave his master a pitying look. I know no more than you, sirrah. The only difference between us is that I admit more easily what I know. Try it yourself. Say this aloud. But in the long run, a whore can cost one more than the most wastrel wife. What? Eh? An old man passing the street turned to him. You spoke to me? <laughs> yeah. But I thought that was particularly important considering what you were saying before as well. That he does say profound things, but the way that the charm describes it itself is that it just doesn't have any preconceived notions or biases or filters. It has to pass those thoughts through. It's just Kenneth's thoughts from the essence of Kenneth himself. Yeah, there's no trauma or... Or forging or... Or forging or bad (laughs) memories to color. Although... I guess the memories would... Well, no, I was going to say, like, does the forging, like, carry over because he's forged when it was made? Or is it just, like, this is Kenneth's life being and all of Kenneth is there because the memories aren't there? Mm. But he seems to have a lot more sympathy and, and empathy for people. So I'll say I'll say it's all of Kenneth. Forging doesn't well, count. This is a new being. Yeah, I but. think it's a new being. Well, I think part of that is that even with, like, Vivacia. That's not solely a vestrit. She is her own person, right? True, Even though true. she has all of the memories of three generations. Yeah. So like. It is like a, a culmination of the dragon's personality. And. And their memories. That, and. Yeah. Yeah. So I think. The person. Yeah. So I think maybe the sympathy comes from the dragon part, which yeah. is a really weird thought <laughs> because we've seen dragons and they are not very sympathetic. And are very self-centered and compared to Kenneth, <laughs> they're more sympathetic. Right. But yeah, so it's just non-biased, non-filtered, non, there's no game to be played. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's no game. That's a good way to put it because in Kenneth's head, he has to have gymnastics. He has to have everything a certain way in everybody's heads, really. Yeah. And this is just, I can get out thoughts much easier. The same thoughts that you're thinking in your subconscious, way back in your head, I'm sure. But I can just say them. Yeah. And there's no worry about what the consequences to letting people know. Because it's just right. Kenneth. And Kenneth views this as himself. Right. 
which is not that far from the truth. So he says out loud, but in the long run, a whore can cost one more than the most wasteful wife. And an old man overhears, and he has a little conversation with the old man now because the old man has been roped in (laughs) to this. Right, this is kind of funny. And just a little mishap. I like I picture this in my mind, like in a little movie scene. I don't always picture every part of a book as a movie scene, but some parts just feel very play-like or movie-like. And like this little like talking to a wrist, and then all of a sudden some guy happens to walk by and kind of hear. Yeah. Like feels very like I can very see cinematic. it. Yeah. I can like very clearly see it in my mind. But we have this old man. He recognizes Captain Kennett. Yes. And he has something to say. <laughs> <laughs> you're captain kennett ain't you from the marietta goes around freeing slaves and telling them to be pirates his coat was fraying at the cuffs and one boot was split along the seam but he carried himself as if he were a man of consequence kennett had nodded twice to the last he replied well so some say of me the old man coughed wheezily and then spat to one side well some say you also they don't like the idea They say you're getting too full of yourself. Too many pirates means the pickings get slimmer. And too many pirates preying on slave ships can irritate the satrap to where he sends his galleys up our way. Knocking off fat merchant ships, well, that's one thing, laddie. But the satrap gets a cut of those slave ships. We don't want to be digging in the pockets of the man who funds the warships, if you get my drift. I do, Kenneth said stiffly. He considered killing the old man. The geezer wheezed and then spat again. But what I say, he continued in a creakier voice, is more power to you. You put it to him, laddie, and give him a couple thrusts for me as well. Time someone showed him that blue ink on a man's face don't mean he's not a man anymore. Not that I'd say that to just anyone around here. There's some as would think I need shutting up, if they heard me speak so. But seeing as how it was you, I thought I'd tell you this. Not everyone that keeps silent is against you. That's all. That's all. He went off into his wheezing cough again, and Kenneth was amused to find himself rummaging in his pocket. He came up with a silver coin and passed it to the man. Try a bit of brandy for that cough, sir, and good evening to you. Old man looks at the coin in amazement, then he held it up and shook it after Kenneth as he strode away. I'll drink to your health, sir, that I will. To my health, Kenneth muttered to himself. I think this is so interesting because we see how distrusting Kenneth is and how kind of almost impulsive he is when he feels there's a threat. But the first thought he went to when he thought this guy didn't like him was, oh, I could just kill him. Yep. I'll just get rid of him. And then the man keeps going and he's like, oh, you know what? I like this guy. I'm going to give him money. Like, <laughs> he's so weird. It's He is. But I mean, that's his paranoia plus the danger of this town, right? Because we've right. heard... This town in particular is very bad, <laughs> but <Right. laughs> if the killing is extreme, sure. But having somebody who is saying, this is what is said against you, but I think you're doing a great thing. And just to let you know, not all of us who are silent are against you. Like there are people right. here that probably really delighted Kenneth to hear. You know? Oh yeah. That's like the best <laughs> news he could have hoped for. So he gives him a coin. The man is extremely happy. Kenneth walks away and towards Bettles. 
you know, he started talking to himself because everything is going mad and wonders of madness is coming in pairs. So Kenneth is kind of just like, maybe I'm going crazy because now I'm talking to myself a lot and that's weird. But you know what? If you were crazy, you wouldn't know you're crazy. So I'm probably safe. <laughs> he notes that uh, for such a chill evening, there were more idlers around Bettles Bagnio than there ever were before. The Tufts, you know, greet him with their typical grins and stuff. And eventually, or to himself, he says, eventually I'll probably have to kill them. <laughs> right. And he says, good evening. And walks in and says, there, finally, there were enough things out of routine that he moved to lightly touch the hilt of his sword at his belt. So he's been very distracted with this, like, thinking of, like, everything's going crazy, everything's going mad. So he just kind of brushes past some of the out-of-place things, enters in, and then finally here, things are just too out of routine for right. him. Saying, too many folk were in the room. Customers did not linger here. Battle did not permit that. If a man came to pay for a whore, then he could take his purchase to a private room to enjoy as he pleased. This was not some cheap sailor's whorehouse where the wares could be fondled and sampled before one bought. Bettle ran a proper house, discreet and dignified. But tonight the reek of Sindin was heavy in the air, and the men slouched insolently in the chairs where the whores usually displayed themselves. The prostitutes, the prostitutes who remained in the room were standing or perched on laps. Their smiles seemed more brittle, their laughter more forced, and Kenneth noticed how swiftly their eyes strayed to Bettle herself. And she, of course, puts on her customary forced excitement, <laughs> excitement to, see, to Kenneth. see Kenneth and everything like yeah. that. So I do think it's really interesting how we are getting to see now in this moment why Kenneth has the reputation he has in some ways, and also how Kenneth came to be the top of his group, how he is very capable. I think we're getting the different sides of capability of Kenneth in this chapter. Um, before this was with the merchants. And then um, now we're seeing him being able to tell something is wrong before he should be able to, I guess. He's capable at sizing up a room and, and telling the temperature of it. Yes. And being able to act quickly and without notifying others that he is in on what may be happening. And I think that's really impressive. I mean, sure, we know that it's weird that there are extra people milling about the place before battle and that puts you on at an uneasy feeling. But if Kenneth wouldn't have described it as weird, we probably wouldn't know. And then, especially when he comes in and he says there's too many people milling about, you can tell he goes into so much detail as to why it's weird that that's how you know. Like, it's just this like unsettling feeling that's like rising in, in your gut as you read this. And like, you can tell things are off, but you just can't tell what, just like Kenneth. And I love that about this section. I think it's so interesting if you're a first time reader to have this sense of unease that like is part of a culture that we've seen one other time before. So there's no way we know it's normal. But Kenneth does. And so he's cueing us into this feeling of like, what's going to happen next? What's wrong? What's the thing? And you're like, I feel like me personally as a reader is now looking for clues of like, okay, what's the thing that's off? Yeah. And and Betel here with her enthusiasm is doing 
pretty similar to the other the other chapter that we had with her saying like oh we have so many different things you can see these different things and Kenneth's just irritable like I want my usual arrangements which isn't abnormal like she always tries to upsell or do different things right Right. like you can have any other girl besides Etta it's whatever blah 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 but this time she as as he points out to her again you know my usual arrangements she takes her his hand and saying oh your usual arrangements fie on the usual captain kenneth dear this is not why a man comes to battle house for the usual now come with me and see just see what i've saved for you and before right before that she asks him to Tell them tales of, like, his adventure and stuff. This is obviously weird. Right. She she pushes him in that first chapter to try other things, but doesn't push too far because he is a well-paying customer, and he mentions that in that chapter. Like, right. this is what he pays for. It's great service with, you know, of course, her customary, like, trying to upsell stuff, but the customary service all right. the time. That's what he pays for. And this is... Way out of abnormal, she takes his hand. Yeah, he and pulls him along somewhere. Right. She also before this is saying, like, I knew you would come here, as though she's narrating to a group as to like, see, I said he'd be here and he is. That's like kind of the feeling that her little I don't know, her little speech gives is just this like yeah. it's a weird thing to say to somebody that you're expecting. It's just a weird way to phrase it. For I knew you were coming, you see, she burbled on. Oh, we hear of it right away when the Marietta comes to dock. <laughs> yeah, so very interesting. And again, like you said, also that weirdness of him taking him by the hand, of the like taking by the hand and dragging him somewhere different. And when he gets there, there is a new young woman, at least if she's not new, she's been working every time Kenneth has been around. Yeah. And he does note as he's being dragged over to that dimly lit alcove that at least three men in the room who were following the conversation with more attention than seemed polite. And none of them looked particularly pleased as Bettle tugged him over to the candlelit alcove. So he he notes things are still off and he notes those particular three men are following closely. So he looks at this. Uh, this girl that she brought brings him over to and he says, for you, you know, as sweet as honey and pretty as a little doll in our largest room. Now, will you want your meal set out first as usual? And he smiles and says, yes, I will. And in my usual room with my usual woman to follow. I do not play with dolls. They don't amuse me. And he does mention, I mean, this girl is beautiful. Yeah. She's yeah. a very pretty young lady, but it's just too weird. And he wants to go back to normal. Yes. It is odd to me that he is adamant to continue going through the steps i i I think he knows what's up at this point okay but he wants to get it over with he doesn't want to be ambushed in a new room right he wants his normal stuff he kind of knows that area whatever it is or play into their trap without letting them know that he knows it's a trap right so he can spring it back on them fair yeah, I guess I just would would have been like, well, if you're not going to give me what I want, I'm leaving. It's like, I don't know. <laughs> I, I probably wouldn't be there to begin with, but <laughs> just is really odd to me. But he does. He decides to go back up and he is very flippant about you can't change things on me. You know how I like things. And yep. he reminds her the good wine. Remember. <laughs> yep. And have her bathe first. Like he he. He specifically calls out the things that he called out before in the first chapter. And I don't know if that's just as a habit 
or just in case this is just kind of weird and it actually is normal or if it's I'm specifically sticking to my routine to not give a tell. Right. right. And then we have another tell that something is wrong. But Captain Kennett, she protested. The nervousness in her voice was suddenly the shrilling of fear. Please, at least try Avaretta. If you don't fancy her, there will be no charge. Kenneth was ascending the stairs. I do not fancy her, so there is no charge. And he keeps going. The small of his back ached with the tension. He had seen avidity kindle in the man's eyes as he started up the main staircase. He reached the top of the landing and opened the door to a narrow stair beyond it. He entered it, shutting the door behind him. And then hides. He takes several long strides up to the alcove right near where the only light is so that he can wait for them to pass him in the turn. He draws his sword silently and just waits. His knife, not his sword. His knife, yeah. Well, no, he says he drew his sword silently and unsheathed oh. his belt knife, belt knife as well. True. <laughs> Typical swashbuckling pirate here, dual wielding. <laughs> and he says he did not have to wait too long. They were too eager. As the first one stepped around the corner, the tip of Kenneth's blade flicked across the man's throat. That simple. Gave him a good shove, and then, since they were halfway up a flight of steps, pushes him down, basically, and then all the way down, he's, you know, stabbing and, and trying to get the other two of them. He also breaks the lamp, the oil lamp, and throws the hot oil on them as they're going down and talks about how um, he doesn't want to aim too low because he had already shoved the one man and he's probably going to die no matter what. So he doesn't want to waste time on that. So he's trying to aim higher to make sure he hits other people. And then on top of that, he talks about the advantages of being in the dark and only being one of him because right now in the dark in front of him is yes, a target. As long as it's not him, it's a target. It's a foe. And they are more likely to have to um, hit a friend than they are to hit Kenneth. So he really has the upper hand here. It really, as like horrible as this is, because it is violence and it is like gory. It is really interesting because this feels like a Fitz chapter. Yeah, like, a bit. I guess there's more emotion in this than I think Fitz ever gives to killing people. But more I'm, narration. At yes, least. Yeah. Like, I suppose. But yeah, so there's definitely, the, but it does feel like Fitz in, in the castle trying to go after his grandfather's killers. Yeah. Just thought tactics yeah. and things yeah. like that. Yeah. No. And I do enjoy that. <laughs> For sure. So they're, they're at the base of that staircase at the base of the door. And one man is fumbling with it and eventually he opens it, but only in time to open it and allow himself and his dying companions to spill it onto the landing at the base of the staircase. Beto looked up in horror from her parlor rats kind of informed her. Another tidy flick of his sword to be sure the last man stayed down and died. Vermin on your staircase. You really should not allow this, Betel. They forced me. They forced me. I tried to keep you from going up there. You know I did. The woman's wail followed him as he turned back to the staircase. He shut the door firmly on it, hoping it had not carried all the way up to the chamber at the top of the house. So this is at the point where he's like, okay, she's shrieking. Close the door. Muffle it because I know people are waiting up there as well. Right. They... So the way that the this whole trap is laid out is that there are idlers outside, extra people mm-hmm. there. The three men were going to follow him up 
there were people waiting in the room for him as well. So people were going to ambush him and then drag him into the room, whatever. Right. I do think it's really interesting that he is thinking about this and like thinking about, okay, what's the next step? He doesn't know for sure that there's people in the room upstairs, but he is pretty sure just based on what he's seen. Um, I also do, did want to ask you, do you think Betel was trying to help by putting him in a different room? Do you think she actually thought that he would be safe there? Or do you think that she mm-hmm. just didn't want it to happen I think she in was the staircase? In between a rock and a hard place, right? Because the pirates could literally, any of them could literally come in and like kill everybody. True. She's kind of at the the mercy of all of that. There's not really a, a police force. There. Right. So... He is a, a paying customer, yes, and she will try her best to save him, but she's not going to straight up tell him because the other people will kill her, right? Right, I so. suppose. Well, but how did they get in? She has security, right? Did they just bribe the security? Like what? They don't like him. <laughs> I guess. I don't know. It is just really odd. I don't know. Anyway, doesn't matter. He is now back up the stairs and he is going very slowly. He doesn't want to alert them that anything has happened. And as he gets up the stairs, he sees a light coming from underneath the door and he hears a few muffled voices of men. At least two, and they sounded impatient. No doubt they've seen him through the window as he approached Bettel's house. Why hadn't they ambushed him at the top of the stairs? Perhaps because they expected their fellows to overpower him and drag him into the chamber for them? He considered, then pouted roughly on the door. Got him, he cried hoarsely, and was rewarded by a fool who jerked the door open for him. And it put the knife low in the man's belly and dragged it up with all his strength. Did not do as much damage as he hoped it would. Worse, it tangled in the man's loose shirt. But he forces his way in through the room now, and... He meets another man, and his blade engaged Kenneth's neatly, turning aside his thrust and then thrust in turn. A gentlemanly approach to fencing, Kenneth realized, as he had set the man's blade tip out of alignment with his throat. A mistaken sense of gallantry and showmanship. And he can he has chance because of that, because of his gallantry and his opponent's fencing style. <laughs> right. He can glance around the room and, and take that in a little bit. And there is a man sitting near the fireplace, a little bit more well-dressed, not at all really concerned about what's going on. And there's also Etta flung naked across the bed. Great. And I do want to mention that there, so there are three men in this room. He was wrong about there only being two. The first one has the knife in him, and the second one was killed in that quick sword fight because of his showmanship, I believe. I don't think he was killed. I think the guy with the knife in his belly is slowly dying, and I think the sword guy is joined later by the the one sitting down. Either way, one of them is one of them is dying, <laughs> and then the other one comes. Yeah, they will all be dead soon, so I guess That's it doesn't true. matter. I just, I guess I read the as he set the man's blade tip out of alignment with his throat. I don't know why, but I read that as Kenneth. Like hitting the throat of the other oh, no. man with He's the just tip. Pushing aside the other man's sword from his throat. Right. Yeah. I don't know. Okay, well, either, either way. Either way. One of them's dead. There's another one with a sword fighting him, or soon to be fighting him, and then a third man sitting down, with Etta bloodied laying across the bed. 
Ah, King Kennet has come calling on his lady, the seated man observed lazily. He gestured with his glass at the whore. I don't think she'll be up to receiving you just now. And he implies here that their earlier entertainment has left her indisposed. So she is obviously bloodied and beaten up and bruised, and they have taken out some of their anger at Kennet at Ada here. And Kennet thinks that that line was meant to distract him, and he says it almost worked. It was distressing. No, it angered him. This clean and pleasant chamber, the comparative safety of Bettle's house, had been taken away. He'd never be able to relax in this room again. The bastards. Right. So the thing that bothers him isn't Etta or what they've done to her. There's no even thought of her in that. It's just that they've taken away a comfortable place, it feels like. Maybe. I I think you can, like, I mostly read it like that, but with the charms earlier saying of I say what you're thinking but I don't have you know don't have a filter sure him immediately going yeah that was distressing it it made me angry and then I'm like no 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 it was it was because of this it almost feels like Kenneth himself is trying to like it's because they took away the safety and the cleanliness of this place okay sure because I mean ultimately I don't think Kenneth has deep feelings for Etta but I think he does have feelings for her. I think he cares about her as though she's an object that yeah. he treasures. Yeah. Or maybe sure. not even treasures. It's just like an it's object his. he likes yeah. <laughs> that he owns. <laughs> Part of his reputation at this point. Yeah. And and that's why I'm saying like mostly I agree with that reading and that interpretation. That's mostly how I read it. But with that extra thing at the beginning, I'm just like, oh, maybe. Maybe there's a little something there. <laughs> I think that's very optimistic for who we know it Kenneth is. is. <laughs> it is, for sure. But right. why not try to read, read some I other suppose. things in it? Maybe. Give him the benefit of the doubt on this one thing. Sure. Part of him was aware of shouts in the street outside. More of them. And he'd have to finish this one quickly and then get the one in the chair. But even as he pressed his reach advantage, the mocking man rose and advanced on Kenneth with his sword. That one, at least, was not stupid enough to think that fair play had anything to do with killing. And Kenneth knows that he doesn't stand much of a chance against two blades, even with, especially without his knife. Stupid time to die, he told himself as he parried one of the blades and knocked the other aside with his arm. He was thankful for the thick fabric of the sleeve, but then, seeing how he must uh, defend himself against two, the other person switched tactics, and it's much more dangerous for him now, and he's just getting backed up into a corner, and he is ready to die here. He talks about how the two men laugh and shout to one another as they fought, mocking words about kings and slaves and whores. He did not listen. He could not listen. One moment's distraction would be his death. All his attention went to the two blades and the two men who powered them. Time to decide, he recognized grimly. Do I make them kill me now, quickly, or fight until I can no longer defend myself well and then play cat and mouse? He was as startled as they were when the quilted comforter was snapped open and flung over one of them. As he was fighting clear of it, the rest of the bedding quickly followed. Fat down-stuffed pillows... Bellowing sheets that draped his enemy's blades and tangled their feet. 
A sheet settled over one man, draping him like a walking corpse. Apt, Kenneth smiled to himself. Kenneth's blade popped through the linen drapery, and as he drew it back, a great scarlet blossom opened on it. Etta, cursing and shrieking, gathered up an immense double armful of feather bed and flung it and herself upon the last attacker. Kenneth quickly made sure of the man he had stabbed. By the time he had turned, Annette had found the other man's head beneath the blanket and was pounding it up and down on the floor. Kenneth casually stabs him to finish him off. Right. So, Etta is at least not incapacitated. Um, we don't really know what state she was in when he came in. Right. There isn't, I mean, for as much detail as there is, there isn't that much detail about what's going on. Obviously, Kenneth has other things to worry about than checking on Etta, um, even if he did like care about her like a human. Checking on the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And there is sort of like a sense of relief, I think, in my reading of this that like Etta's okay enough to get off of the bed and fight. Like, she's watching this and is able to help. And I think that makes me feel relieved because that means that, you know, like she isn't dead, <laughs> number one, but number two, that she is somewhat okay, at least okay enough for her adrenaline to be able to help her push through and help defend this room with Kenneth. Right. Yeah. And I think it's incredibly brave of Etta to have done that. I oh, mean, yeah. after the brutality that I'm sure she just faced to then say, you know what? I'm going to help Kenneth and I'm going to try to fight back too. Like he clearly can't do this alone and I'm going to help. And I, She's I probably know. scared of her future if Kenneth did die though, too. True. Like not a lot of great situation or choices for her. True. She threw in her lot with Kenneth who has shown her preferential treatment and kindness in a gift that wasn't really Kenneth's intent, but right. <laughs> we've but, talked about that. Yes. But I mean, still, I think it does take bravery to, yes, it does to act on that, knowing that they if you go weapons. behind him, yeah. <laughs> and if you stand up for Kenneth, he'll reward you. I think that's like one thing, but being able to act on that and to say, you know what? I don't care. I'm probably going to die either way. That's a huge sense of thing. I don't know. Yeah. I think that's really big that she was able to pull that off. True. And, and we, we discover that later. She is a very strong person and very ruthless person. Yeah. She definitely. is a pirate queen at the end of the series. So Definitely. But um, as Kenneth finishes off the other man, Etta isn't really letting go of this, like slamming the head and he lets her know like, hey, you can stop that now. And it kind of feels like, you know, Etta is still just very um, surprised. This is like... In shock. And, yeah. You know, it's yeah. a scary situation. You're not sure. Your life is in danger. Like, of course, you're not just going to like... Adrenaline's pumping. Yeah. Except that the person's dead. I don't I don't know for sure, but I think it's pretty safe to say Etta probably hasn't killed anyone before. Right. Yeah. And probably hasn't seen that much death in the life that she's chosen. I know she's in Divi town, but Bethel seems to run a pretty clean show. And so I don't know that she really gets to be front row like this to that much violence. The pounding of the head stops, but the pounding continues because people are running up the steps. Kenneth is trying to wade through the bodies and close the door. Try to get, you know, any advantage in case people are going to 
come and kill him. But the door bangs open before he get, can get there, and Sorkor is out of breath, red-faced from running, as were the men who burst into the room behind him. An old man, he gasped, came to the ship, said you might have trouble here. Now that was a bit of silver well spent, a small voice observed. Sorkor glanced at Etta, thinking she had spoken, and then self-consciously turned his head from the naked, battered woman. She staggered upright, glanced at the other man staring at her, and then stooped awkwardly to drag up a corner of one blanket to cover herself. It revealed a man's hand and arm flung lifelessly on the floor. Trouble, he observed dryly, a bit. Pass me my knife, please. And Sorkor observes that you're right, you know, there, there's been talk in the against us in the town and some are angered by what we do and specifically calls out is this this person of the sea vixen and it's like i don't know i just killed these people it's, i have no idea but etta can respond and she recognizes them saying yeah it was ray i knew him well enough all of these were sea vixen men that was their captain skelt in a lower voice she added they kept saying they'd show you that every pirate is his own king that they didn't need you, and you couldn't rule them. That makes six, one of Kenneth's crew observed in awe. Captain took down six men by himself. And how many were outside? There were four. They took care of those men. And Kenneth is kind of ecstatic at this whole thing. He's, he's realizing what an opportunity this is, saying, They still lost. Ten men. They feared me very badly to wish to be so sure I'd be dead. His smile widened. Power, Sorkor. Other men see us gathering it to ourselves. This attempt is but proof that we are moving towards our goal. And aware of the other crew is like, oh, and taking our crew with us as well. Right, right. <laughs> no, good save. <laughs> and the pirates and Sorkor are grinning back at him. Basically like, yeah, Captain's happy about this. Right. He took down six men by himself. Which is actually very impressive. <laughs> yeah, it is. I he, mean... I would say he took down five men <laughs> and needed Edda's help on Yes, the, the that's six. fair. That, I mean, he needed Edda's help for two of the six, but... Yeah. No, there is definitely... I mean, it's still an impressive thing to be able to say that he's done, especially as a pirate captain, I right. think. I mean, think about Fitz. He was a trained assassin, and he couldn't... I don't think Fitz could take down six people like that. I think he could in, uh, uh, in Royal Assassin when he has his axe, gets into his battle fury. Like he, he does take down multiple well, men. He carves his way to. That's a little <laughs> okay. different because it's on a battlefield. Pitch and battle. Yeah. yeah. I feel like there's a difference between like what Kenneth did and what that's the battle is. Yeah, that's and fair. I don't think Fitz has the ability with a sword to have been able to no he, he doesn't hold them off that he also way. doesn't have the killer instinct I don't, I don't no that's he true he wouldn't have wanted to kill any of them if he could help yeah. it um but no it is so there is like this impressiveness going on and this awe i think we're overlooking a little bit that like etta is clearly a little traumatized from this oh, yeah. i mean she knows who these people were and i'm sure she knew them before now even if they weren't her customers um, and she knows everything that they were saying because they talked a lot before Kenneth got there. Right. And now Kenneth is trying to spin this into this, like, look at this. The people were so afraid. They sent so many men and they still couldn't handle it. We're too powerful. Like, this is great. And then he turns around and instructs them not to tell anybody 
about the six men that he killed. We have to pretend like it's not a big deal at all. Let other people tell the story for us. It will spread faster. Right. All of us are going to be sleeping on the ship tonight. It's safer to do so, but we're not going to make a big deal about it. Right. Right. We're going to be seen around town enjoying ourselves, but we're just going to go to bed and not mention it. And then yep. rumors will fly from there. Exactly. And we're so. not bothered. Yes. So he divvies everyone up into different tasks. He takes, he tells two men to go find the other crewmates and tell them to go to the ship tonight to make sure that they have safety, that even the captain and first mate are going to be sleeping on board. Everyone needs to get to the ship. He's going to have two other men follow him and Sorkor as they walk around town, showing themselves to be alive and well. And then the final man he tells to take his woman to the ship. Well, okay. So there is a final man and he's glancing around the room for something for him to do. Right. (laughs) And says there was something else he should do here. Something he'd been intending to do. Ada stood silent looking at him. A tiny ruby sparkled in her earlobe. Oh, and you, he pointed to the last man. See to my woman. Yes, sir. Uh, how, sir? He shook his head angrily. He had things to do, and they bothered him with details. Oh, take her down to the ship. Put her in my cabin for later. If the town considered Etta his woman, then he must put her out of casual reach. He must appear to have no vulnerabilities. He knit his brow. Was that all? Yes. So I want to ask, is this compassion from Kenneth? Is this empathy? See, that's why, like, the, the first thing during the fight of like this distracted him oh it's distressing and angry that's this also kind of seems plays into that a little bit i i think i'm taking the opposite stance in this scene than you were asking right there okay than the previous one i think this is pure strategy this is exactly what he says in the last two sentences they considered Etta his woman so why would he leave that if even if even if he cared for her. Right. Why would he leave her on shore then? So he would just take her along. And even if he doesn't care for her, it would still affect his reputation if everyone else perceives him caring for her and she can get harmed. Right. Mm, but so, he doesn't have enough like power to save her. Yeah. Something. Okay. So the, so protecting his, he must be seen as with no vulnerabilities. He says, right. Protecting Etta is just part of that strategy. If no harm befalls her at all, that's him protecting his own. If she is just left alone, he is per- she is perceived as part of his crew, and she is then the target, which okay. makes him vulnerable in, in reputation, right. not necessarily emotions, depending on right. his level of care for her. <laughs> Fair. Yeah, I guess that's where I was a little confused of like, if he doesn't care about her at all, why does he care? Like, then he could show people like, oh, I don't actually care about her clearly or else I would have saved her. And so I don't know. Yeah. Very interesting that he decides, no, I'm going to take her with. Mm -hmm. And so she drags the sheet free of the last body, wraps herself with that. And stands straight as a queen. Yes. Straight as a queen. And Kenneth is glancing around the room one last time and then took in his men's proud and incredulous grins. Even Sorkor was smiling. Why? Ah, the woman. 
They would have expected carnage like this to kill his appetite for her, that they believed it hadn't made him more of a man in their eyes. Lust had not motivated him. He did not find bruises on a woman arousing. But his supposed lust for her was what they were admiring. Well, let them think that, then. He glanced back to the blushing man. See she is provided with warm water for a bath. Feed her, and find appropriate garments for her as well. He supposed this meant he'd have to keep her in his cabin. At least let her be clean, then. And then kind of says, well, you've got your orders, let's move out. Right. I think this is really interesting, because this little scene of, like, ah... This is like a man thing, and they just think I'm a manly man now because I still want to have relations with this woman, regardless of the fact that I just killed six people and she's all beat up. And it really makes me think of Wintrow. Not because Wintrow would ever be in this situation, but it feels the same of like... This is the expectation? Yes, Kenneth's a little bit more knowledgeable, but like Kenneth doesn't feel this way. Kenneth can recognize the pattern and what the rule, quote unquote, rules are, the like invisible rules, but Wintro can't. And Kenneth knows the rules and can understand the way people are thinking about the rules, but he doesn't necessarily follow those or feel affected in the same way. And so it really does feel a little bit like Wintro in this, where he's like, oh, I can see how. For them, these simple men, they are thinking about it in like a sexual way. And I was just trying to think about it in a way to make sure my image is safe. And like, I'll let them keep thinking that because that's better for me. And I like see that kind of thought process when we have Wintro's point of view when he's like, oh, they're not making fun of me. They're trying to make me part of the team. This is how they talk. Yeah. And Robin Hobb does an amazing job of using both of those points of views to really get us and and Althea's point of view to really get a glimpse into what her ship crews are like and the culture there. It's all, you know, my, even, even the small detail, the background details of it, like mild is repeating what his captain said or like what the crewmates are saying about his captain. And, you know, if his captain makes a really good sale and makes a lot of profit, that reflects well on himself in some way. Yeah. The same way that these these men are looking at Kenneth like, that's my captain. Yeah. Yeah. He's still full of desire after killing everybody. And it's not, he's, a, he's such a man. Like, yeah, we're, we're men for following him too. This is what a real man looks like. It just kind of relates. It's the same, same culture. Right. All the sailors throughout the whole book, which is really cohesive and makes a very believable world. Yeah. So they kind of all move out. Kenneth has issued his orders here. The man in charge of Etta decides to go up to her and scoop her up in his arms as if she were a large child. To Kenneth's surprise, Etta wilted against him gratefully. And... That was, I think, really interesting to me to read. Yes, Kenneth, women have feelings and emotions and responses, too. Also, of course, she's exhausted and wants to just be, like, taken care of in this moment. Like, (laughs) she just suffered a lot, okay? Give her a minute. Um, But then he goes down the stairs and, oh, you're alive, is what he's greeted with by Bettle. Yes, Kenneth agreed. In her next breath, she exclaimed angrily, do you think you're taking Etta out of here? Yes, 
Kenna called over his shoulder up the stairs. What about all these dead men? She shrieked after him as they strode out of her house. Those you may keep, Kenneth replied. Etta caught the front door with her hand as she and her bearer passed through it. She slammed it shut behind them. And they're free. <laughs> Witty little line there. We didn't really talk about, I mean, we mentioned it very f- earlier and then I kind of breezed past it, but the charm speaks up in the midst of a group of people saying that was silver coin well spent yes. remarking on the old man. So not prophetic, but an interesting line when he's speaking in a group of people. Yes. So the the charm tries to be quiet, but does speak up and say things and quietly. And can be heard by others. And can be heard by others, which is a big part of the later books because the charm speaks up and says stuff that Etta responds to, that Wintrow responds to, right. says things that draws Etta closer to Kenneth because of the charm, what the charm says. Right. So really working with Kenneth on a lot of these things. Yeah, really just adds to his luck. Yeah. Yeah, what a what an exciting chapter. Yeah. Interesting chapter. I definitely feel bad liking that chapter because it is a lot of death and violence and ah, I don't know. That's great. It's fantasy. Battles. And it just is interesting. (laughs) And it's like strategy and like fun. I don't know. It feels like Assassin's Creed. (laughs) It's just like interesting stuff, I guess, uh, after so much buildup of exposition before this, that it's like nice to actually get into the book. This really feels like we're in it. We have a lot of action happening. But it's also one of the chapters that you feel bad for liking because it's one of the most obvious and straightforward examples of the inferior place of a woman. Right. And view of a woman in the majority of this part of the world. Right. Because we have, you know, Sincure Falden's daughters and his wife being basically relegated to a servant at that point. Right. And then the title (laughs) itself. Right. As an object. Yeah. And then the whole thing at the end, basically again, as an object to protect. Right. And that kind of doesn't care for. Yeah. Yeah. No. And like, and even with the earlier women where they don't even get lines, I don't think like we don't, maybe the wife later on, they do. Um, I believe, Sorcor does end up marrying one of them. And mm-hmm. I think they're depicted as in love with each other. But right. But I don't know. This chapter does not pass the Bechdel test. So. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> Unsurprising with the name as it is. <laughs> yes. But it is. Yeah. I think it, that's a good point, though, that this is like. A really big like. Actually, women's are women are objects in this world. Brashen was a little bit right when he told Althea that she needs to be more careful. Yeah. But if you ignore that horribleness, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's still yeah. a very entertaining chapter. I love this yeah. chapter. Actually, it's it's a, an awesome look inside, and like you said, it's finally rolling. Everything that's been set up is finally gaining steam. Yes. It doesn't feel like we're getting new information and that like we have to we're still figuring out the rules yeah this is just (laughs) new plot and that 
that helps. It also felt like it went really fast, probably because there's action, but also because last chapter was 50 plus pages. So it was nice to get that break of like, oh, fast and chapter. We're still at about like an hour and a half. So still well, <laughs> just it not felt two faster. hours. <laughs> well, thank you so much for tuning in and listening this week. If you have any thoughts about this, uh, any thoughts about the charm or how women are treated, <laughs> please let us know. Any Anything uh, so far about any of the storylines we'll be reading and discussing and talking about. You can reach us at isfitshappy at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and still Twitter for now at the time <laughs> of this recording. But isfitshappy at all three of those. And I have uh, been uploading episodes to our YouTube where it is fits happy on that as well. But uh, if you want to listen to podcasts on YouTube, we're on there as well. I'm slowly uploading the uh, the first three books of episodes. I think I'm <laughs> almost done with book one. So this current book is on there. <laughs> yeah, we look forward to having you guys join us for the rest of the journey and put your input in too. Okay, so now we get to talk about the stuff you guys have brought to our attention. Which and is a lot. Yeah, this week we have a ton. Um, well, this we've, week we've been collecting for a few weeks. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is the first time we're getting to some of these. So some of these topics aren't necessarily, um, has, I don't know how to, like it's not, not on topic. Nothing is on topic ever. Just a lot of, it just jumps around a lot. Yeah. So, so. quick shout out to... Uh, Jonas, Ellen, Anne, Melissa, Bastin, and Amir. I think I mentioned everybody who we're going to be talking about thoughts from. So thank you, everybody who wrote in. Um, we'll try. We're going to talk about some specific things, but there's a lot of topics that got brought up in general, uh, and and we're touched on quite a bit. So we can talk about those first, yeah. I guess. So we'll be a little bit more generalized with some of them. But thank you all for writing in and bring up our attention to some of these topics. Um, I guess the first one we'll start with is I think we got no less than four separate people taking Brash inside for being angry with Althea. Oh yes. Uh, when he was, <laughs> when she almost died and he was about to hit her and reprimand and yelling and stuff like that. Yes. So. I have been thoroughly told that I was not being fair. And I think that is a very fair point to bring up. I wasn't exactly fair. I think I have a very idyllic view of how things could be because this is fantasy. So, <laughs> so I right. like to think of like, oh, wouldn't it be nice if they could just do things that we can't do here in the real world? But it's Robin Hobb. It has to be it is. as gritty and depressing and, and real and real as, as possible. A lot um, of emotions. So yes. yeah, a lot of people chimed in and basically said, it is a real thing that anger can come from fear. A few people wrote in about personal anecdotes um, I think one person wrote in about their profession that they have to deal with youngsters and dangerous equipment. And a lot of people just said, you know, it could even happen. Like, even if there is a young person crossing the road and doesn't look before they cross and they maybe almost get hit by a car, the person who like an adult nearby is going to be mad at them right. because they were scared. Like you could have died. Why didn't you look both ways kind of thing? You know, definitely. Yeah. 
no. And it, it is, it does make sense. I mean, it's human nature for a fear reaction to be anger, especially yeah. in a life or death situation. Like you're just like trying to process that emotion. So a lot of times, especially in the heat of the moment, something can come out as anger, even though it's not necessarily what you mean. But uh, a lot of people were also on your side a little bit saying that, yes, in a perfect world, you wouldn't have resorted to violence. Like, yes, that, ideally, that's not the best response. But they understand because of the life or death situation that right. they are living in. And a couple of people pointed out that Brashen is a pretty smart guy and he is adapting to the world. It's very realistic that he realizes that this is a different ship and there's no need to not like move up the rank. Crewed by criminals. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, just the idea that like he is he has the choice of either not moving up the rank and living by Efren Vestrit standards or being a little bit stricter and meaner than he would have been but still kind of playing that line and moving up the ranks. So of course he's going to choose that. Like this is livelihood. This is right. the money he needs to survive. So yeah. I think that was also a really good realistic look at it. So thank you for bringing that up. And I will concede I was too mean to Brashen. I will. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> well, on the next topic I have to concede because an overwhelming majority said that it is probably a stone dragon on the Baron's that they camp under and not a live dragon that died there. Yes. I, I like the fantasy of it, of a, a dragon dying and then not rotting for thousands of years and just <laughs> kind of sitting and calcifying. But everyone is like, no, almost 100%. It's a stone dragon <laughs> uh, because this is actually a important, we were, I was reminded of and pointed out to that it's an important plot point later that Amber is very interested in that story from Althea and probably where she gets the idea for the Wizardwood Arrow that helps in Tawny Man, obviously. Right. So it is and an important thing to note when the dragon does die in Tawny Man, as we were reminded of, it pretty much instantly turns back into lifeless stone. Which yes. is what that statue is. And eventually the wings would get buried and whatever. Think, so. Yeah. Um, I think it was also really interesting because I know I think I was the one who made the comment about um, the hard part about it being a, wi a wizard wood arrow right. in the stone dragon is that it feels like this is a really old statue. And why would somebody like potentially an elderling desecrate the cocoon of a dragon to make an arrow out of this to fight this. But again, we were corrected. Yes. There is evidence that they use this, they use wizard wood, which is not what they called it um, to make artwork or other tools such as the rooster crown. Yes. So the rooster crown and feathers were made out of wizard wood or womb wood. I believe it was called. Yes. And gifted to elderlings that were that dragons were particularly fond of because, you know, maybe the, the dragons didn't hatch properly or whatever. Right. So you know, there, there's always going to be some leftover. Same thing with like, you know, scales or teeth or whatever. There's something, right. you know, they yeah, there's other uses and ways the dragons can humanely give these to people. So. So, yeah, so we are we stand corrected because they definitely could be and seem to be the 
remnants of an arrow uh, that is wizard slash womb wood. <laughs> yes, yeah. And speaking of wizard wood, we have uh, a couple comments on some of the procurement discussions that we've had about it. Yeah. So we were kind of talking about the Rainwild families, the trader families there, you know, who owned what, uh, how, uh, what people knew about the wizard wood. And I think we, we got some evidence leaning towards, and, and I think actual evidence in an epigraph that was sent in, I believe by Anne off the top of my head. Thank you. If you, if you sent that one in, uh, Specifically mentioning that only Blood family knew the actual secret of what Wizardwood was. And then some evidence from other people that talked about how there maybe was somebody working on on uh, Tarman, that their relative was a woodworker and they didn't know, you know, the secrets or anything right. like that. So it's pretty, pretty confirmed that only the Blood relatives of the family that is making the particular live ship would know. That. And, and not one family owns all of the logs or anything like that. Right. It's just that the Cooper's family is one of the wealthier families and yes. has helped make a lot of the live ships. Right. Um, they do. I do believe they are one of the families who know the secret though. So yes. they absolutely yes. know. And somebody mentioned too, that um, not all of the carcasses were recognizable as dragons. That at yeah. first they didn't know for sure what was happening, um, but it became more clear as they used more of the wood. Mm-hmm. So that was a really interesting theory. But we also got a really interesting question from Anne about the Rainwild traders and what they do. And that was, why are there Rainwild trader families that are known for certain products? So the Coopers is like with their flame gems or whatever, like why, why is it just that? (laughs) And I thought this was such an interesting question because absolutely. Once you hear it, you're like, yeah, wait, that doesn't make sense at all. Um, But it was, it's basically like, supposedly they're excavating the towns and sure you could say that like the Cooperses hit the gold mine and happened to be in the rich part of town and they found a large quantity of something but you'd think that that isn't the only thing that they found if they're excavating a town so i i'm going to take a stab at explaining this rationally or try to sure from my understanding of the book i'm going to postulate some things this is not <laughs> necessarily 100 accurate but I will say that these families are known for those things, but that does not mean that is all that they sell. Okay. So the Cooper's family, very, very rich. And I think it's because they have, they, they excavated a part of the area that had a lot of flame gems or flame Mm -hmm. jewels. And I think there is a certain talent or a certain procedure that they bring about to, make new colors or things. And that might be proprietary secrets mm-hmm. because I believe when rain is introduced and that family is introduced, they talk about this new color that's coming out that they're, they're going to start selling cause it's super right. rare. Right. So I think there's some sort of, you know, we actually have our own process where we're merchants and artists as well. Kind of thing. Okay. But 
that's not the main point that I'm trying to make. It's the main point is I don't think that's all they sell. I just think the Cuprises did get lucky in what part they excavated and that had the main cache of that section. And I think their specialties that these families are part of are just because that is the area that they excavated. Right. They might have like other families might have some flame jewels, but you know the Cuprises are going to have the more like more of them, more colors, probably better quality just cuz they lucked into that. Right. So that that's my explanation or thought about that, the specialties, I guess. Because, it, yeah, you're right. It doesn't make sense if, oh, we have this new city that we're going to excavate. Cooper's lay claim to all the flame jewels. Yeah. None no. of the families would <laughs> like that, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's super weird. I think I was trying to think about it. And I also was wondering, like, are they just going through a bunch of rich people homes and like getting all the good stuff out of the walls and hoping that there's enough to have a good quantity to sell. Like it seems as though flame jewels were used in decoration for a lot of places. I think we see that later in the book that like they're on the walls and And also like, I think like as controls for things too, right? Yeah. So at least in whatever part of town that they happen to own, there are a lot more of them, but I think it's really interesting to think about like, how do you luck into a large quantity of anything to be known for that? Yeah, and like, fair. were there shops that some of them found and there's like <laughs> still like a big quantity and they happen to also find the supplier of the shop. So then there's like the warehouse <laughs> of the shop, like what's going on? How do they even find enough to like, but I guess like the rain wilds is constantly coming out with new things, quote unquote, and they're super rare and they're super expensive. So I don't know. Yeah. Interesting to think about. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And Anne also mentions, as just to finish up her email here, that Golden Dawn was the first awakened figurehead. Yes, we were correct. Tarman is, as we found out later, is the first live ship, the first boat that they built. Mm -hmm. But Golden Dawn was the first awakened live ship, and everyone was surprised, and they started having conversations with it. That's also from that epigraph that was in Assassin's Fate, I believe. Mm. The last book. Yes. So she states that and is also like, did we hear about that ship after that? And I don't think so, but I also think it's going to be one of the Rainwild Traders ships. Right. So we wouldn't see it in Bingtown very often. That's fair. Because a lot of the the section in that epigraph is talking about how the Rainwell traders were desperate, looking for some sort of material that would withstand the Rainwell River. Right. And when they found this, they rejoiced because it could withstand it, and they thought it was prized logs, right? They made the tarman, that worked, and they made this ship, I'm guessing. Right. And surprise, it comes to life. Yeah, no, it's very interesting to think about the history of live ships and how they came about. But it does, like, will we ever hear about this in this series where it would make the most sense to hear about it? Or even the next Rainwild trilogy? I don't think so. I don't remember it. We'll have to keep our eyes out. But it's there. It's There's textual evidence that that is the first live ship that is awakened. Um, but I do think that it, it's also brought up in this email with that, that it goes to talk about how like there are mistakes in the later books about like, 
Oh yeah. Kefria being missing and Althea being Wintro uh, Wintro's sister and just yeah. the relation of people in the Vestrit family specifically are a little bit wonky in the later series. These books uh, I don't know if they had a good editor, but they needed another editor yeah. to go through them at least. It's really weird because I feel like there aren't that many big mistakes like that in the series, which is kind of impressive considering there's 16 books, but it's, it's really bad. bad for the Vestrit. Like the Vestrits are just like, Kefria doesn't exist. And Malta is now the sister. Malta and Wintro are the, the siblings of Althea. And I don't know. It it's, just, yeah, it's, it's not Kyle did never exist. Like there, there are some, some major errors and more, in these books than I've seen in some of the other long epic fantasy series I've seen. So mm-hmm. this is honestly, disappointingly, some of the worst edited. Cause I know Mage Grey becomes Mage Gary at some <laughs> point that yeah. the that beloved turns into. Like it's just some weird typos that are repeated throughout things. And that are now it's it's just part of the series at this it's point. It's part of the series. Everyone knows that Kefria does exist, that uh, Kefria and Althea are siblings, and Malta is the niece to Althea. Yes. Even if it says differently in the last book, you know? Right. Yeah. Definitely not not great, but I'm not going to hold it against Robin Hobb. It's still a great series. I'm still going to read it. Right. Yeah. That's <laughs> but, not all on, yes. on the writer's part. So. No. But yeah, so that's... um. That was a really good, interesting thought process and um, things to think about with the Rainwild traders. Yeah, thanks so much for that. There's there's another small topic we had discussing live ships before we move on to other topics here. And yes. that was one that was brought up by uh, Bastion, who was commenting on our discussion about Paragon and what if we left him alone, like actually stranded for a long time. And he made an interesting comparison between live ships and stone dragons and really thinks that that human contact is like the battery that like fuels them. So if they're left alone for too long, they become dormant. They lose a lot of their coherent thoughts and memories. And as we see with the stone dragons, that the oldest ones are basically just living on instinct when they're awoken so he thinks that paragon left to his own devices would become dormant and just a base creature similar to those stone dragons but maybe could be awakened with prolonged human contact maybe like stone dragons could eventually be awakened right yeah i thought that was an interesting thing to bring up yeah and i like that comparison of the two especially considering they're both kind of dragon-esque like there's a little bit of dragon in both of them, but neither are completely dragon. So I like the comparison of them in that way that their mechanics are similar. It's just a little bit easier to power a live ship because yeah, it's a ship that a bunch of people have to live on. Yeah. for and, sure. And a stone dragon, people aren't really like in contact with that super often. So thank you for that idea. Well, we've talked ad nauseum about live ships and stone dragons and stuff. I think yes. it's we can move on to a uh, an actual character. <laughs> Talk a little bit about Wintro. Sure, yeah. 
We have a, a couple emails in about Wintro. One was from Ellen. Thanks so much for writing in. And this was kind of piggybacking. We had a similar conversation in the first trilogy about autism and how that relates to some characters and how people can interpret things and, and experience things in the books um, from their from their own lives or different experiences that they've encountered in the world. And I think that's awesome. And Ellen thought about uh, Wintrow in relations to autism because we were talking about his trouble socializing, recognizing and picking up on those cues and just right. not being aware of certain things, even though Vivacia was, even though his mother was just by being told a simple story. Like right. Wintrow just couldn't grasp those things. And uh, also relating how he sees everything in black and white. Very, very strict. Right. So it was a very interesting email. Thank you so much for writing in. Yeah. And it is always really cool to see how different people and even just different communities can view the same thing. Um, when reading a book and I've said it before, but I'll say it again. That's kind of my favorite thing about books is that we all bring our own unique eyes to this character and we, or to the characters plural and get to read with our own. We're coloring in the coloring book with our own life stories and we're bringing that experience to what we're reading. And so really we're all reading a different book, but you know, in this way, I like, that we have created a podcast where we get to like talk about those different colorings, the different ideas that and things that you can see just based off of your life that maybe somebody else would never have read into. And I think that's such a cool thing about books in general, but especially this series that there's a lot of openness to like, Oh, there's like, could be neurodivergence here. There could be um, trauma and pain there. Yeah. It could just be, of course, there's trauma. And yes, pain. <laughs> it's Robin Hobb. <laughs> <laughs> and it could just be treatment of a gender that you've never gotten to personally, right? Be yeah. firsthand with, and I just think that's really cool. I think mm-hmm. that's a fun tool. And Ellen specifically going into uh, the reasoning a little bit says that the routines of the monastery being so strict and then being thrown into something else is also something that stuck out. Mm -hmm. And she is very interested to see in the future if it's, if Wintrow's journey is just unlearning that monastic culture. Right. Or if it's a person with autism trying to navigate and learn the skills and tools of a not very autism friendly world. Right. So they're very interested to see how that progresses in a reread with us. So thanks so much for sharing. Yeah, no, it's definitely a cool perspective to think about and fun to see that it can fit with that. Yeah, definitely. And we do have another email uh, about Wintro as well, which I also thought was uh, very insightful. And this one is from Jonas, specifically talking about how Wintro, how he he can relate to Wintro so well and and how he can feel so deeply for him and went into a very... um, very well thought out dive deep dive on his character and, and his arc so far right? of how a lot of people, and and this is kind of a theme throughout the book are raised in their bubbles, their protective bubbles as a child, things are black and white. Things are, this is right. This is wrong. This is how the world is. And then all of a sudden they're thrown into it. And a lot of those people adapt. They're, 
their principles and their values to that gray world that's out there. Right. Try to try to navigate it. But Wintrow is the one that sticks out to Jonas that he always fights back. He always tries to stick to his values that he learned that he learned to navigate in in the monastery right. and tries to fight for those principles. And he does allow the circumstances to change him, albeit, you know, very slowly. But Jonas says at his age, it's pretty impressive. And yet I so love that he keeps his kind nature and intelligence as a driving force and stays true to himself all through it. Unlike his father. Right. He can't handle pretty much any of those changes. Yeah. No, it is really interesting. And it is commendable that Wintrow does try to keep his himself to his morals and yeah. to what he thinks is right. And I think there is a little bit of give because he is experiencing that gray instead of the black and white, right. but that helps yeah. him feel better about most choices. I think in the, on the whole of like, mm-hmm. yeah, sure. Things are a little bit different than I expected, but that doesn't mean you can't go against the grain when it's important or that you can't be kind whenever other people are being mean like there's no need right yeah and and jonas does say that yeah you have to grow up right right you you do have to grow up and lose some of that naivety that you had as a kid but wintrow fights very hard and jonas says he he really relates to wintrow and some of that disillusionment of going into an adult world you know some something like that of just being confronted with that harshness and having those strong morals and trying to stick to other people with Wintrow being uh, pretty self-righteous and ready to judge other people. There was a lot for him to learn, but he still tries to choose the values while adapting. Right. And, and that journey is what we kind of read throughout this trilogy. And he honestly, I mean, all of them have great character arcs, but, Wintrow, while seemingly staying very true to his original self, changes tremendously and grows up. He matures before our very eyes, and it is a very interesting story arc that I'm looking for more forward um, to reading now in this reread than I than I was in my casual rereads. Right. Because... As I mentioned before, Wintrow is like so-so on my scale of characters that I like because he's so whiny and self-righteous in the beginning. He's fine later on. Like he's he's a good character. But now that I'm like looking closer at him and we have insightful comments like this, it it is entertaining and very exciting to see where he does go and what kind of turns that that growing up takes. Yeah. I also think just to... This is kind of not about Wintro as a whole, but I think in general, doing this sort of close reread where we're really getting into the characters' headspaces, I think it makes me care about them more. Like I'm I don't want to be mean to them as much. I mean, <laughs> except for Kyle and Kenneth. But like Althea, I'm sure Malta, whenever we get to her. Just in general, like Kefria, oh, no, Monica. I'm be hard on Malta for sure. <laughs> I just feel I don't like care I have... that she's like twelve. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think I just feel more like connected to them, and I like 
they're like little children. I want them all to do well and like make better choices mostly, but (laughs) yeah. So it is really fun to get to see people who have their favorites, give us deep dives and help us think a little bit more deeply about some of the characters that maybe we weren't giving as much attention to. So thank you guys, everyone who commented and had something to add or just comments to make. Also shout out to, um, the one comment that we got. I think it was Amir on Instagram saying, I'm starting to think Emma doesn't like Kyle. Um, that one actually (laughs) made me laugh pretty hard. Um, but it's always fun to hear from you guys, whether it's silly comments like that or really deep, insightful questions or comments. We love hearing all of your guys' point of view and it makes us really excited each week to see what else you guys have to add. Looking forward to next week.